You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 75 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? Well, I'm pretty excited that we've got to 75 episodes. Like That's practically a milestone. Well, I would so say so. Yes. Um, but I'm also pretty miserable because oh. <laughs> you know, despite my best efforts, I have contracted the lurgy oh. and uh, you know, it takes a bit longer to get down here to the south coast. So I was thinking... <laughs> That I had avoided it, you know, because it's spring now. I was thinking, great, we're, we're through it, we're done, but no. No. Anyway, so here I am. So if I sound a little sexier than usual, it's all down to, you know. There's always an upside, <laughs> isn't there? I, sh- I should go and record my um, my answering machine message again. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at the silver lining. It's all right. So what are you up to this week, Valerie? Tell what me am about I up to? your exciting life. I am talking to you from my hotel room in Melbourne. So Ooh. I have been, well, uh, I think listeners may know I was in Melbourne last week as well, but I, I went back to Sydney and now I'm back again, um, getting to know Melbourne really well. And uh, uh, what have I been doing? I spoke in an event at the uh, Melbourne Convention Centre, so that was fun. And um, I'm speaking at another event tomorrow and I've been soaking up the ta- – I soaked up the tail end of the Writers' Festival and, you know, hung out at the State Library and went to The Moat, which is that great cafe that always seems to be filled with interesting writers because, of course, I eavesdropping to their conversation. What's he do? Because that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to. I just sit there and have my tea and – they just happen to be sitting, you know, half a metre away from me and they're talking. So It's an essential, actually, it is an essential part of any writer's toolkit, I think, is just to, you know, not overtly, no. not go out of your way, no. but just to kind of tune in sometimes because you do hear some really interesting things and you often get some great ideas about from what people are talking about. You know, oh, I think it's, absolutely. It's an important thing to... You know, I don't think I should feel bad about it. I, I really, because I go to Sydney, obviously, a lot on the train, and yes. I love a good train trip because you do hear some fabulousness on the train. <laughs> the train, okay. You do, because it's, you know, two and a half hours, so people have time to get to know their seatmates, and they will yes. sit next to each other and, you know, unload their entire life story to each other, which, you know, for me is fabulous. And I particularly like sitting somewhere in the vicinity of a group of teenage girls or teenage boys because that's always highly enlightening stuff. Because uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago a um, a, a particular meme or particular hashtag, I think it was hashtag plane breakup as in aeroplane. Oh, that was awful. (laughs) That was awful. I I actually, I really disagreed with that. I, I had massive issues with that and particularly the photo. I just sort of, 
I, I felt like that was such an invasion of privacy. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about tweeting the entire conversation plus photo to the world. I, I just think that's, to me, that was all about the tweeter and aren't I clever? Yes. And, you know, and so someone, if, else, someone else's misery. If and, people and aren't photo. sure, oh, if people so aren't sure what the photo is about. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So I was a little bit soapboxy right there, didn't oh, I? Right. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I was very unhappy with that. The anyway. tweeter, a person on a plane, uh, was witnessing basically uh, a, a couple breaking up and she was live tweeting because on planes in America, they're civilised there, they have Wi-Fi. Um, it wouldn't be great if we had that here, but they have Wi-Fi on planes there. And so she tweeted their entire conversation, you know, including a picture of the girl crying and all of that. So people were hanging off her every word, her all, all of her tweets. And taking, she, you know, taking glee in someone else's yes, misery. Yes, What's but there's a but, German word for that. Schadenfreude is that it? Anyway, oh. continue. Sorry. Well, at the end though, one of her last tweets was, "Oh my God, I can't believe it! Now they're making out." So they kind of made up. <laughs> it was a happy mm. ending in a sense. I still, yeah, no. Sorry, no. Yes. No, don't, don't tweet the conversation. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about perhaps if you had overheard that conversation and you took that away and the fact that they were making out by the end of it is probably the most interesting fact that you could use in a scene or something like that. It doesn't yes. have to be about those people and it's not a blow-by-blow. Blow. And putting a photo of them up yeah, so that terrible. everyone in the known universe knew who they were, just wrong. Sorry, that that just wrong. part was wrong, very wrong. The, so the photo wrong. made it particularly wrong. Yeah. But it's true because you get you learn so much. Like I was at breakfast this morning and, you know, where you, you they put the tables is actually really near the next lot of people. And so I heard the entire conversation of this couple who might have been you know, 60 or whatever, and she wanted to go buy shoes and he was making every excuse under the sun why he shouldn't go buy shoes with her. And, of course, that was the only part of the conversation I heard, but I made up the entire story of their life in my head mm-hmm. <laughs> and and already, you know, knew the names of their children in my head <laughs> and what they did for a living in my head because you kind of just let your imagination run wild and and you can get these amazing ideas as, as mm. you say mm. from just listening to other conversations Helen Garner was you know said that um you know as she just sits at the bus or you know sitting in a doctor's waiting room she just listens to people's interactions just writes stuff down all the time well I, and I think it's an interesting thing because I remember seeing a I don't know if it was a blog post or just a Facebook thing by Kim Wilkins who mm. we've of course um interviewed for the podcast and she was saying how we're losing a lot of that because we're so busy on our phones and things like that that we're not actually having that five minutes to just take in what's going around us Mm. going on around us and listen to what's you know because you do pick up a lot of the everyday and a lot about the rhythm of conversation and the rhythm of dialogue and Mm. all of that sort of stuff just by tuning in to what's around you and you know if you're if you're on your phone watching someone else break up in a plane over the US you're not listening to what's around you and I think you know it's worth putting the phone away for five minutes every once in a while just to see you know what is going on around you yeah absolutely because all we're not just staring at the phone we're also listening to podcasts like us (laughs) (laughs) of course we are yes but don't stop doing that no no you should listen to us more often because you get all this good stuff exactly anywho where were we (laughs) plunge into the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week you have an interesting link for us I do I saw this uh, in my round, my trawling of the internet, and I loved it. So 
lots of people have always will always say, oh, they'd love to own their own bookshop. You know, that would be such a lovely life. And um, well, for one hundred and fifty pounds a week, Ooh. you have the opportunity to live in and run the open bookstore in Ooh. Wigtown, Scotland. Goodness. It's an Airbnb. Um, it's an Airbnb these days. So you can actually just like move in for a week, run the bookstore for the week and then go home again so you can see <laughs> if you like it. <laughs> you get to pay for the privilege. <laughs> you pay £150 for the privilege. Um, you're expected to sell books for 40 hours a week while you live in the flat above the shop and oh you'll get God. a little bit of training in book selling while you're there. And uh, you can put your own stamp on it for the time period that you're actually in residence. So, you know, if you've ever wanted to try it, you know, sunny downtown Wigton, Scotland is calling you. That's a classic. And I know. If you want it's a longer-term commitment, I remember about two years ago in the town of Clunes in Victoria, which has many, many, many bookshops, uh, I think there was a bookshop for sale for a dollar or something, or it might have been even for free. <laughs> Aww. But the condition was you had to run it, of course. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. actually sure if anyone took them up on that offer. Well, the interesting thing is the open book, which is the bookshop in question in Wigtown, Scotland, is leased by the Wigtown Book Festival from a local family. Mm-hmm. And they have, um, they've been letting paying volunteers run the shop for a week or two at a time since the start of the year. Wow. But now they're opening it up to the, um, to the larger world via Airbnb for the first ever bookshop holiday experience. <laughs> first ever bookshop <laughs> holiday experience. I oh know, my goodness! I know. Forty hours in a bookshop. Have a great time. But no, I yes. think it'll be. I think it'll be very fun. <laughs> You'll get to yeah, read a lot of books. Um, <laughs> well, you have another link for us. Uh, apparently, a very frustrating link. Oh, this was quite an interesting. Um, this was quite an interesting little post. It was on AustralianAuthor.org, um, and it's a letter from <laughs> it's a letter from a writer saying that she feels that her name is Mary Wallace. She feels that competitions and opportunities for emerging writers need yes. to be clearer. Okay. So she has seen many times uh, an award or competition for emerging authors and thought, that's me, I'm emerging. She's had a couple of nonfiction books published, a handful of short stories, some reviews and features, and she's got a children's book coming out next year. So sounds emerging. But when you look at the guidelines for these particular competitions, she doesn't actually fit the eligibility criteria because in the TNCs, it looks like emerging is actually synonymous with unpublished. So if you're not published, you're emerging. And I have to say I tend to agree with her a little bit on this. I feel like the term emerging has is one of those uh, phrases that are one of those yeah, words, terms, whatever, that has become a bit of a catch-all yes. for people who haven't been published as yet yes. and also for people who as you know are in the very early terms of their career as she is. Um, so what do you think about that? Like do you what do you think about that term being so kind of grey? I think that the writer of this letter needs to get over it because <laughs> um, she actually says when you look at all the when you look at the guidelines for all these opportunities, people like me don't fit the eligibility criteria. So obviously, all of these opportunities have the same definition of emerging, mm. and just that's what has become the definition of emerging. But why, don't why get onto just- semantics. But why just, are they not just called unpublished? Like this is, I, I take her point from this perspective. They can call it whatever they want. It's their, it's their opportunity. It's their award. It's their, you know, competition. 
she can create her own thing and call it unpublished if she wants. But, you know, it's it's not as if it's just one person who's using the wrong word or, or using a word that's different to everyone else's expectations. They're all calling it emerging. So just get um, over it. Well, yeah, I, I do agree with that to a degree, but I also feel like it's a little bit of a let's give everyone a ribbon kind of mentality in that sense of, you know, another term that you'll hear a lot for people who haven't as yet been published is pre-published. So you hear <laughs> pre-published and you hear emerging and you just think, well, why don't you just call it what it is, which is unpublished? And yes. what, what, why is that a problem? Like, that's what I don't get. Like, if you're not published, then you can apply for this competition. That, because why, why it, muck around with the, with the message? Because... There, it's quite quite likely that unpublished is actually incorrect because the terms and conditions may say that self-publishing doesn't count or something. You, uh, you see what I mean? And if you've been, if you've, so we bring if, self-publishing in, it gets even more confusing. Yes, if you've self-published, you have been published. You're not unpublished, but then you might, you know what I mean. So it's all. Uh, I see. So mm. not traditionally published would be yes. where most of these uh, competitions are putting themselves. That's right. Okay. All right. So, well, Mary, I do have some sympathy for you, but Valerie has none. <laughs> no, I mean, I just think, right that, <laughs> I think that I think that the thing is that Mary says that the guidelines for all the opportunities. Yeah, you know, I, see what you say I take that, your so. point. Like, she just needs to maybe realise that she's not emerging. Yeah. Sorry, Mary. Sorry, Mary. Uh, so let's move on to something that's always fun: an Oxford Dictionary's update. Like so many new words, like mic drop, (laughs) mic drop. Have you? Yeah, like this is what I'm hearing this all over the place now. And um, so, mic drop is one awesome source Mm -hmm. because we know what awesome source means. Just means Mm -hmm. like really awesome. Mm -hmm. Man spreading, Mm -hmm. yes. Are you, you're familiar with what manspreading is? I am. The practice of making up, taking up most of the seat when you don't actually require most of the seat. Yes, yes. Brain fart. Mm. <laughs> uh, fur baby. Fart in the dictionary. Sorry? Brain fart is now in the dictionary. Is that what you're telling? <laughs> well, in the Oxford Dictionary anyway. Uh, fur baby. Oh, that's yours. You are to blame for that. Yes, yes, true. Yes. Also, beer o'clock, wine o'clock, very important terms which everyone uses these days, as including the word hangry. Are you, do you ever get hangry? I do. Which is, I of course, a blend of hungry and angry. I can't believe MacGyver's only just made it this, this year. I know. Really? Insane. I've MacGyvered that. I can't believe that that's only just made it this year. I can't yes. believe it hasn't been in for 25 years, really. Anyway, yes. well, uh, that's always fun. Have you got your newly updated version now? Of the Oxford Dictionary. Just out and buy it or, 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 you know, subscribe or whatever you do with This dictionary? is probably on the online version at the moment. <laughs> I'm not sure they printed a whole new dictionary just for these words. Oh, okay. But, of course, the other important thing is the cat cafe. Oh, that's essential, Val. Mm. No, I can't believe that the Cat Cafe has not ever been in there before. No, so important. <laughs> but moving along, oh, uh, we'll yes. put the link in the show notes if you want to see all of the words, but it's always good to see what the Oxford has decided uh, is, is you know, going to go into thing. the dictionary now. <laughs> is a thing, yes. Like YouTuber is a thing now. Yeah, of course it is. Yes. 
Now let's move on to a link that I saw this week about how the ballpoint pen killed cursive. And it's just really because BIC, you know, the biro company, recently launched a campaign to save handwriting. And it was called Fight for Your Right, as in (laughs) W-R-I-T-E, to encourage the act of handwriting. And look, it's true. With so many iPads and devices and computers these days. I mean, I remember when I was at school, sound like I sound really old, I know when I say that, and we learnt cursive writing and we spent hours just practising our words with that slopey paper so that we would slant our cursive writing a certain way because we went from printing and then in year th- two, from in years, you know, one and two to being grown-ups in year three where we started learning cursive writing and it was a really, really big deal that we were doing cursive writing. And I don't have kids, so I wanted to ask you, do they even do that these days? What do... No. they. Well, I'm just trying to think. So my oldest is in sixth grade mm. and he still prints. Um, really? And prints well. Mm. And my youngest is in third grade and he prints not particularly well. He takes after his mum, I think, in the <laughs> world of handwriting. Mm. Um but, yeah, no, I, and to be perfectly honest with you, I wish they'd started typing lessons in grade four oh, because yeah. I really feel um, like they go to – so, you know, Mr. Eleven goes to high school next year and mm. ev- everything switches to laptop, everything. Oh, yes. And, you know, the homework's all done on, uh, online and everything's done in Google Drive and, and you know, I, I honestly think they should start teaching them to type in fourth grade. That's what yes. I think. Um, because that's just the way that, the way it goes. And, you know, but then I will also say that, uh, last week, I received a letter from a reader. Oh, like a written Sadia, letter? And it was a handwritten letter oh. um, telling me how much you like the books and asking me questions and things like that. And it was so nice. It was just great. I've, I've got it here in my little file. And it was a beautiful thing. And his handwriting is better than mine. So when I sent back a little card saying, thank you very much for your your letter I had to actually acknowledge on the card that his handwriting is better than mine and I hoped he could read <laughs> what I'd read <laughs> wow nice yeah and he was in third grade oh so sweet. He, yeah it was really cute so that I think I think handwriting becomes more valuable now in many ways like the actual act of somebody sending you a handwritten card or a letter or something like that is just so lovely mm, because yes we don't see it as much, we don't see it so much, you know. As I said, by the time they get to year seven, it's totally, you know, pretty much phased out. Well, handwriting is very important to our next segment, actually, mm-hmm. where we're talking about our writing craft book, because I have started rereading after, oh gosh, a decade or whatever, uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And uh, have you have you read The Artist's Way? Yeah, I have, like years ago. Yes. Years ago. It was, yeah, so it was years ago. I've forgotten most of it. Um, but I've started rereading it. And, of course, one of the important things about that underpins the whole Artist's Way process, and if you're not familiar with The Artist's Way, it's, uh, it's a book by Julia Cameron and it's all about freeing your creativity, whether that is in writing or, you know, sculpting or painting or whatever. It's finding what creative juice you really have inside you and letting it out and obviously I'm assuming mine's writing so um, one of the things that uh, underpins the process is a concept called morning pages where each morning you're just meant to write three pages but you are meant to write it longhand and um, 
And that's a, that's a pretty important part of it. So the thing is, if you've got really crappy writing, oh, you, you know, it, it would just it be painful. Be difficult. could be painful. I would but... find that so difficult. And also, like, given the fact that, you know, as we discussed last week, um, I'm off to the physio to have my, oh, you know, yes. RSI checked out, then, you know, you kind of have to go, well, three pages of longhand just sounds painful to me. <laughs> Does it actually hurt when you hear I think three pages would. I don't know. I haven't done well, it for a long have time. To press really hard or anything. Somebody give it a crack and see. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll get back to you if you like. I'll write three pages and we'll see. <laughs> it must be like riding a bike. You used to write more than three pages. I know. It just gets. Whatever. It's like if you actually saw my signature, and you know my dad's is exactly the same. It's like an A and then a straight line, <laughs> and then there's a T and then a straight line. Like it's just, it's just disintegrated into, into appallingness. So I don't, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, anyway. I, I'll report back with my yes, morning pages do. because, you know, it's been a while since I've been doing that. But um, what's been happening in blogging this week? Oh, well, I wanted to draw attention to a blog that I, well, I wrote a post last week called Five Aussie Author Blogs to Watch yes. because one of the things that I get asked a lot is, um, you know, as emerging writers and mm. established writers and other people are asking, um, you know, if I start a blog, what should I blog about? What should it look oh, yeah. like? How mm. how should I go about it? And obviously I'm doing some research um for the Build Your Author Platform course that I'm writing. Yes. Um, so I was twirling around and I thought, you know what, there are some Aussie blogs out there that are Aussie author blogs that are doing some really interesting things and they're not all the same and that's what the reasons that I chose the five that I chose because they, they kind of take different approaches and I think it's always worth having a look at what other people are doing and then deciding. But one of the blogs that I mentioned is that of Natasha Lester, who uh, we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, mm. She's a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre mm. and uh, she keeps a fantastic blog, particularly yes, if, you are, if you are you know, wanting to know more about the you know, world of publishing and, and, you know, writing and how to get published and all that stuff. She has some fantastic how-to stuff there. Mm. But she wrote a very interesting post this week, last week, last week, um, called What's More Important for Writers, Self-Belief or Self-Discipline? Mm. And um, it was interesting because she went to Melbourne. She was at the Romance Writers of Australia conference and she spent time with writers at all different stages in their careers. And she kept hearing that one of the most important things for writers was to believe in themselves, to have self-belief. Mm -hmm. And while she agrees that self-belief is important, she actually feels that self-discipline, that is, you know, writing every day, mm. making time for it, sitting down, doing the stuff, is the best way to actually reinforce that self-belief. Because you're always going to have a negative voice. There's always going to be that voice in your head going, oh, this is awful. Why yeah. am I doing this? I'm oh, yeah. crap. You know, blah, blah, blah. I'll never be published again, yeah. whatever, you know. Um, but if you sit down and you just keep writing and you, you know, at some point something's going to come out that's good. And yes. that's basically her point. Self-discipline for her wins every time over self-belief. Even if you can't, even if you don't believe that what you're doing is amazing, get to the end of it yes. and then go back and have a look at it. Because, you know, the the little voice in your head that can talk you down every single time if you let it just needs to be beaten into submission with hard work. Yeah. That's my theory and well, Natasha's. I have so very, definitely worth having a read. 
I have very little to add to that because I 100% agree. Yeah. There you go. We'll put the link. wins again. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. I will. It's a very good post. Very good post. But what I thought I would do now is just let everyone know that if you have been listening for the last few episodes and you have been sticking with us to the end, you'll know that it's worthwhile. And I encourage everyone to stick with us to the very end of the podcast because at the end of every episode we give away something different every week so i just thought i would throw that in as a community service announcement nice segue there yes but now we'll segue into segue again where are you taking us now though our writer in residence this week Our writer in residence this week is Tony Cavanaugh, and he is a crime novelist, he's a screenwriter, he's a film and television producer, and it's interesting because he has written a number of books. His latest one is called Kingdom of the Strong, but they all centre around the same character, Darian Richards, and he shows how they can be standalone novels, but obviously part of a greater series. I know you're very familiar with that concept with the Maver Chronicles, Alison, Um, uh, but you know, he had a lot of interesting stuff to say and uh, I just wanted to point out that we the audio could have been a little bit better in this um, recording but uh, we had some issues on Tony's end uh, because there wasn't a, a, a headset but we really wanted to chat to him because he had interesting stuff to say so I hope you enjoy this week's interview with Tony. Tony Cavanaugh is a crime novelist, screenwriter and film and television producer. He's created and written for various television series, including some shows like The Sullivans, Carson's Law, Medivac, The Flying Doctors, The Day of the Roses and more. His Darian Richards novels include Promise, Dead Girl Sing, The Train Rider and now Kingdom of the Strong. Thanks for joining us today, Tony. Well, thanks very much for having me, Valerie. Now, for readers who haven't read your latest book, Kingdom of the Strong, can you tell us what it's about? (laughs) Yeah, I can. It's about, um, especially about a cold case that's 25 years old, and the character in all of my books, Darian Richards, is um, found at the beginning of the book sort of aimlessly sitting in a boat on a lake in the Great Lakes District in um, New South Wales. And he's visited by his old boss, the uh, police commissioner of Victoria, who mentored Darian and had, in fact, retired. He was then brought back by the government to sort of, like, keep the seat warm as they try to find a new commissioner. And what he asked Darian to do, which is the thrust of the book, is to investigate a peculiar death that occurred 25 years ago in South Yarra in Melbourne where a young lady was about 19 years old, whose name was Isabel, was found in her house and the coroner couldn't quite figure out if it was murder, if it was an accident or if it was a suicide. And in the midst and swirl of the coronial inquest and the rumours at the time, it was said that there were three cops, Victorian constables, who were kind of involved hassling her that they worked for a drug lord in Melbourne. One of those cops, is now, 25 years later, tipped to become the new commissioner. And so the object of the exercise, as the old commissioner, Darren's mentor, says, exonerate him. And if Darren says, but what if I can't exonerate him? And the commissioner says, well, if you can't exonerate him, he goes down. But I don't for a second believe that he was responsible for that poor girl's death. Mm. And so Darren goes back to Melbourne, which is where he came from, 
the city of murder, as he calls it, because as he drives around, he just keeps on remembering all the mayhem and murder and slaughter that he uh, attended when he was in homicide in all the streets and all the suburbs and digs back into the past and investigates the three cops who are now quite high up um, in the police force and tries to find out what exactly happened. So this is the fourth book in the Darien series. Take, can you just take us back? Because before you even started writing these books, you've had a lot of experience in the film industry. You've created and written for various television series, including, you know, starting with The Sullivans, Carson's Law, Flying Doctors, Day of the Roses. But when, when and why did you start exploring crime writing and this series of books? Uh, I was always, well, not, no, I wasn't always interested in crime. When I went to Flinders Uni back in the late 70s, I became obsessed with crime and I read everything that lay my hands on, and especially Brandon Chandler, who I just adored and he kind of stayed with me and haunted me for years and years and years later. And then, as you said, I got heavily involved in film and television for many, many, many years. Um, and then in the 90s, I started going back into crime writing when the Michael Connolly book came, books came out. Mm. Um, and I love Michael Connolly. He's great. All of his books, all of the American uh, current crime writers, you know, they're fantastic. But I, I started to devour that world again. And then about five years ago, just when I started writing Promise, I was at a sort of a crossroads in my life where I'd reached a kind of a dark point. And I'd been into rehab a couple of times and I was com- completely pissed off with the world of filmmaking. I had a sort of catastrophic experience and the marriage had collapsed and I found myself living in this grungy little motel room in, on the Gold Coast with no money and uh, it was it was drastic and horrible and all of that. And out of those sort of, in that sort of black hole in which I found myself, I thought, I'm going to start writing a book. Um, and so I started just writing it and it just, you know, after about the first 20, 30 pages, I felt comfortable with what I was doing. Um, and I thought, yeah, I think I can probably do this. I think I can figure out the process. And I sort of, I had Stephen King's book on writing with me, which was a great help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just um, spent a lot of time every day um, just working on it. And I had met the people from Hachette prior to that mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, and so I had a contact. And so when I was about forty or fifty pages in, I sent um, back down to. Bernadette, who was at her shed at the time. Bernadette Foley? Yeah, and she was very encouraging and urged me to continue. So with that, and she was great all the way through. And after I finished, she handed me over to Vanessa Radnitz, who's my publisher now. Um, and the, so the process of feedback with Hachette was great and that sort of helped me along the, along the way. So those original 30 to 40 pages, they became the first Darian Richards book? Yeah, they did. Yeah. So, where did Darian Richards come from originally? How did you, you know, dream up this character and decide what <coughs> he was going to do and what he was going to be like? He's an amalgam of about three very high-ranking police officers in Victoria. Only one of whom remains in the police department. <laughs> um, I spent some time with these guys in homicide. Uh, it's in Kilda Road down in Melbourne on this um, film I did back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And of late, yeah, when I can't, yeah, no, about 2007, 2008 actually. 
And he's a and also back with I created a series called Fire back in the early nineties in Melbourne and I interviewed I spent some time in the police department there as well. I interviewed Narson Squad Cop, I can't remember his name. And he was completely and utterly burnt out because he'd been chasing a serial arsonist for something like eighteen months and it completely destroyed him. They found him eventually, but not through police. Uh, a police investigation. It was just simply a random phone call from a, a, friend, a friend of the um, serial arsonist. But this guy was—I I can still see him, even though it's so long ago. You know, he just—he was just sort of buzzed out, burnt out, sort of leaning out. He was just really bitter and cynical. And he made a big impression on me. I never—and I, when I was putting together the character of Darian and just thinking about all of these policemen that I'd worked with and talked to over the years. Uh, my guy was kind of born. And I added a couple of sort of flourishes. You know, I've always been obsessed with driving a red Studebaker. And I've written in so many scripts that one of my characters drives a red Studebaker. And every time the production designer comes to me in the office and says, Tone, you know, we can't do this. We can't afford it. How about a Mustang? I've I've always acquiesced as a producer. And I can't, yeah, yeah, get the f***ing Mustang. I know it's a bloody Studebaker. It's too hard to get. So finally, I've got the red, the red Studio Baker, and it's fabulous. And there it is in the books. <laughs> and then a few other little bits and pieces of idiosyncrasies that, you know, I drew on from my experiences. Like, you know, I'm hopeless with directions, and Darian shares that with me. You're, you're always getting lost. Mm-hmm. But um, essentially, he is, yeah, as I said, he's, he's a, a, fictional, a fictional amalgamation of about three or four police officers. So when you're writing crime and serial killings and police work, I know that you did, you know, some, spend some time, as you just said, because of the film work that you did with some police. But what kind of level of other kind of research have you had to do in, in this area into, you know, crime scenes and forensics and, you know, the mind of a criminal and that sort of thing? Have you done a lot of research into, the, into this area because of this? Yeah, I have. Um, and... Above and beyond what I've just mentioned with those particular police officers down in Melbourne, I spent a lot of time with other cops up in Queensland and in the in the territory, all over the country, really, just on various different different shows. So I I was pretty familiar with the world of the um, of investigation, police investigation, and especially with homicide. So I. I'd, I'd observed a lot of that, studied a lot of that, talked to these guys, understood kind of where they're at. I certainly understood the process of, um, you know, the procedural process. Mm. When it comes to the mind of the serial killer, though, I, that's, a, that's a totally different thing. I've never actually – one of the people who I work with is a profiler. He was trained by the FBI back in the 90s. This is a great insight into the mind of serial killers. But um, aside from that, I've done a lot of reading. There's a great book by Robert Hare, who's Canadian. Um, psychologist called Without Conscience, which in many ways is sort of the Bible of, of psychopathy, sociopathy. And I've studied that again and again and again. And then about three years ago, Simon Baron Cohen, who is, I think, a professor, well, he's a professor at either Cambridge or Oxford, and the first cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, <laughs> wrote, a, um, wrote a fabulous book called The Science of Evil, which is a more recent take on and it's more of a scientific take on the notion of evil and psychopathy and narcissism and lack of empathy and then of course there are all the uh there's all the stuff you can find online like you know the the chilling 
recount of BTK after he was caught talking about the packages and how he would go off and, you know, stalk his victims. So it's, it's, you know, when I'm writing, I've always got the, you know, the internet up and I'm always on Wikipedia and I'm always going to all these crazy sites reading about all these insane things uh, with these, you know, shocking people. So I, with all of that, I felt comfortable. It was interesting when I wrote Promise, I wrote The Serial Killer. I made the decision early on to bring in the voice of The Serial Killer, but I brought it in in the third person. And when I got the editor's notes back, she said, put it in, the, put, put his voice in the first person. It's going to be much more direct and dramatic. And she was right, but it really freaked me out for about two weeks. I just couldn't get my head around it. He was such a nasty, even in the third person when I was writing him, he was so horrific. I literally, I'm, I'm not joking. This is not like, you know, so I literally had to go and have showers after I after I'd write, write one of these chapters, and I'd made a conscious decision to not, you know, obviously we all centre ourselves and we've all got our own moral boundaries and what it is that we write, and I applied that in certain places, but I did make a conscious decision to get into this guy's head and to write him as they are, and not, you know, sugarcoat it and make it sort of. Um, G-rated or PG-rated or even M-rated. Do you ever scare yourself <laughs> with no. what, what you write? No. So I've always been fascinated, though, by the minds of crime writers. Do you Are you always thinking about crime? Do you sit there and think, oh, I wonder how you might murder someone in that situation? <laughs> no, I don't. And, in fact, the process, of mur- the process of murder in my books is not one that I really think about that much. Um I think about the psychology and what drives them and the narcissistic lack of empathy and how they like how all of my bad guys, so to speak, all of the criminals in my book books are quite intelligent, articulate and very and they've and you know, in the first book, Promise, the the killer actually quotes a lot of these books that I've just been quoting because he's read them all. Um, and so he's on top of it. He knows just as much. And indeed, you know, that that's borne out by the research because I know, having spoken to my friend I just mentioned who works works as a profiler. He said that a lot of these guys, you know, when they go to jail, they study up on this sort of stuff and become experts at manipulating the system, experts at manipulating the psychologists, yeah. uh, and they just really know how to make it work. You know, not only charm but great intelligence. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think about the murder, but funnily enough, last year I was asked to work on Miss Fisher's murder mystery season three. Yep. Yeah. And I'd always been sort of dismissive of the Agatha Christie style of, of crime writing. I'd read them all, or many of them, when I was younger. Mm. And I just thought, you know, that drawing room approach to, you've got five, you know, the Cluedo approach. You've got a victim, you've got mm. five suspects, and then you've got the drawing room scene where the, the hero sort of manages to untangle it all and say, you are the killer. Um, I always thought that was just, you know, easy, cheap bullshit. But when I started working on Miss Fisher, it was it was fantastic because I really got to understand how incredibly difficult that type of plotting and that type of crime fiction is. Mm. And that requires a lot of thought about the murder, about the victim. With Miss Fisher, we spent a whole day. We had five days of plotting during the story conference. We spent an entire day on the whiteboard just figuring out who the – they're on the screen for like 30 seconds mm. – who the victim is. And then how and why this person could have been killed by up to five 
men or women. So subsequently, of course, the victim, but I said God's Square 30 seconds, becomes the most interesting character in the show because there are five, there are five people who have got five different reasons to kill them. Mm. So, so that, was a, that was a really interesting process for me, very different in terms of thinking about crime, thinking about actual murder, the process of murder, and also with Miss Fisher, like with Agatha Christie and a lot of those older, older English crime novels, the, the, the sort of um, the cleverness and the difference and the exotic nature of the killing, a killing, is, is part of the you know, allure. Mm. And sp- well, speaking of you know plotting and planning all that out, then with your own books, do you start with just the seed of an idea, or have you already got a plot in your head before you start writing the whole thing? How does it work for you, or do you just let it unfold, see what happens? Yeah, I always start with an idea. Um, it's so different from writing film and television because mm. with film and television, and when I write my scripts, I really need an outline. I, it's you know, if I don't have, if I write like I write the books, which is basically just letting it unfold and figure it, figuring it out as I'm going through it mm. without any clue where the fuck I'm going. <laughs> um, it's so different when I'm writing the script. I have an outline. I know where I'm going. I know exactly what's going to happen. But with all of the books, and I tried to do it with promise. I thought, well, okay, this is the process of writing. This is what I'm familiar with. This is how I'm going to make it work. And it, it, it really sort of suffocated me in a way. So I just abandoned it. And I, I felt okay about abandoning it. Because I'd been to a talk by Lee Child some years ago in Brisbane. And I actually asked him the same question. I said, how do you plot? Do you plot? How does it work? And he said to me, I don't plot at all. I just start with an, he starts with an image, he said. He just has a picture. Mm. And it could be at the beginning of his book or at the end of his book, but it's just an image which then, he just then works from. Um, so having, and I'm a big fan of Lee Child, so having heard that with incredulity at mm. the time, um, some years before I started writing, I thought, I'm going to do what Lee Child does and give it a shot and see if it works for me. And it does. I find it works really well with the books. It means a lot of rewriting, of course, but I don't mind that. That's all cool. Mm. So once you get to the fourth book, your, char- your character, well, let's take Darian, he's unfolded over three books already. Did you kind of think, well, where do I go to next in terms of his development or was that not something that was relevant to you because you were, you know, focusing on another part of the plot or whatever? No, I always do think about that. I'm always conscious of... Each book, in each of the books, the crime itself is not really that important to me. Said before, it's about, it's about the psychology and the, the purpose of this book, and really what this book, King of the Strong, was about, is really about abandonment by the father. Mm. It's about his, you know, his relationship to his father, who did leave him when he was very young, mm. and the police commissioner, the old police commissioner, is a father figure to him. So I'm exploring that relationship. Uh, and with each of the books, it's I need to find something along those lines that thematically sort of anchors me in terms of the story and what my character's up to and where he gets to, you know, where I start him at and where he gets to by the end of the end of the book. It's usually not a happy place, psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the in the previous book, in the Train Rider, I explored the notion of whether or not this particular character Darian can actually settle down and and love somebody mm. uh, again it's not a happy happy ending for any, in any of these books <laughs> what do you find the most challenging thing about writing crime or about writing generally but writing novels I should say uh, 
gosh, I don't know, being, I guess, being relevant, being interesting, doing a, I don't know. That's okay. Um, what's the most <laughs> challenging part of it? Yeah. Uh, not writing books. Right. Really, you know, I, I strive very much, I strive very much to, you know, access the language and, you know, make my turn of phrase as compelling as possible. Mm. That I think is the biggest challenge for me. I don't, the, the actual process of narrative and story is not something that's a big challenge for me. And that's because of, you know, I've had 30 years experience in film and TV. So the yes. putting together of the story, but keeping the story fresh and original, and, you know, it's easy to default especially when you're writing crime or fancy, it's easy to default to the familiar. Mm. I'm constantly sort of reminding myself not to do that. But I think the biggest challenge for me is, aside from just keeping it fresh and interesting and keeping it, keeping, putting something together that the reader hasn't read before, mm. the biggest challenge is, is accessing, accessing words, the language, and not defaulting into you know, hackneyed phrases or... Mm. Or that sort of stuff. So when you are writing, when you're actually, you know, in the throes of, of in the middle of your novel, well, what's your typical day like? Do you have um, a writing routine? Do you actually juggle script writing projects at the same time or do you have to focus on one thing at a time? No, luckily I can focus on a whole bunch of things at one time, but I do have a, a pretty strong um, regimen. I get up very, very early in the morning, about three or four in the morning. Three and- or four? Yep. And then I start writing at about five or six. And I've been writing, I started writing at about five o'clock this morning. What's time now? One o'clock. Yeah, I'm still writing now, but I'll finish up in a, in a couple of hours. Um, and yeah, I usually write, if I'm writing a novel, I usually work from about, as I said, from about five or six in the morning through to about midday, one o'clock. Then mm. I'll go off and do emails and if I need to do a meeting or whatever. Sometime I like to try and write every day. Mm. I like to try. You know, Stephen King says you've got to write three thousand words a day. Ray Bradbury said one thousand words. Some, you know, it's good. Tony says just write. Um, <laughs> sometimes I write one word a day. Sometimes I write five thousand words a day. Just as long as I'm actually in the world and you know, thinking about it, exercising it, making it happen, trying to make it happen, mm. and not sort of walking away from it. As long as you're in the, what I call the zone, as long as you're in the zone and not taking time off and sort of spending a significant amount of time, like days or over a week, away from the material, mm. then I feel, you know, I feel okay about it. I never get into the book. It takes me 10,000 words to get into every book. Up until then, it's real stop, start stuff. And I'm all, I'm all over the shop. But once, just whatever reason, once I hit the 10,000 words, I think, okay, it's good. It's flowing now. But up until then, it's it's it's, it's hard. Mm. And how long does it take you generally? Usually, promise only took about three months. But I wasn't doing too much else aside from writing that. Mm. Um, it's usually about four, three or four months to do the first rough draft, mm. and then depending on the level of rewriting that's required after the edit comes back, maybe another month or six weeks. Mm. Cool. Wow. Efficient. What's next for you? What are you working on now? 
Well, I'm doing a lot of film and TV work at the moment. I put promise into development as Nate Carter. Right. I'm waiting to hear back from about that as to whether or not that's going to move to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm just writing a couple of scripts. And I'm talking to Hashid about um, about the next book, which is not going to be a Darian book. I'm going to leave him on the highway for a bit. <laughs> okay. Is it <laughs> yeah. going to be crime? Uh, well, yeah, but it's going to be non-fiction. Oh, Okay. I've, I mean, that's what pretty much all I read is non-fiction. I'm just mm. obsessed with non-fiction histories and bi- not so much biographies, but this will be a biography uh, on right. the most amazing story of an incredible guy. What is the most rewarding thing about writing to you? <sighs> you know, for a long time it's just been my life. I don't really, I'm a pretty boring guy. <laughs> I, don't go, I don't go out very much. Um, and I don't really do very much. Sometimes I do a lot of binge TV watching, mm-hmm. uh, like Breaking Bad or the Vikings or whatever. Oh, yes. But, but aside from that, I'm, you know, writing is my life. I, you know, I, I jump out of bed every morning. It's been cold this past few mornings, here, even here at the Gold Coast. So, <laughs> and I'm just excited about it. I love it. I really enjoy it. It's just, it's my life. I can't imagine... Well, I can because I went through a bit of a process, a bit of a time when I didn't write and it was horrible. Mm. So it's just, you know, it, it merges into, you know, my life is defined kind of pathetically, I guess. My life is defined by my, when I'm living alone in this big house, my life is defined by my, um, by my writing and my work. I'm a really boring guy to live with. <laughs> so you've been writing for so long that obviously it's second nature to you and it's your life. Um, there are a lot of listeners who it's not their life yet, but they actually want to be in a situation where it is because they're aspiring writers or they've still got their day job or whatever and they're yeah. writing, you know, on the side. What's your advice to them? And we'll finish up on this. What's, what's your advice to those aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like, like you are? One day. Yeah, okay. There are a couple of answers to that question. Firstly, I'm just going to quote Stephen King. Mm-hmm. He's got two great pieces of advice which are very consistent but very true. And the first rule is write. Actually, just do it. And the second rule is to read. And then I'm going to add to that, you've got to be persistent. You've got to be passionate and you've got to be persistent. And you've got to believe in what you're doing. And you can't just do it for money. If you do it for money, you're fucked. You've got to do it because... You believe in it. You know George Orwell's essay on why I write? The spirituality, the political nature of who you are and what it is that, you know, the writing means to you. Mm-hmm. As long as you can tap into that and access it in, the, in a way that is meaningful to you as a person. And as long as, of course, there's a practical issue with a lot of, with, you know, a lot of people, and I have it myself because I teach part time at the New York Film Academy and when I can sort of drag myself up there for it. Holiday of teaching. You know, I just don't want to be here. I'd rather be writing, but you know, I need, I need the money to pay the rent. So there's a there is the practical issue of juggling and balancing, you know, income based work, which is kind of important, and the you know the passionate work that you really want to be doing. That's just simply, and it's very difficult. As I said before, I'm kind of I'm kind of pathetic, but also lucky in that I, I live alone and I can do what I want. I don't. We're not married anymore. The kids are all growing up. All that sort of stuff. Um, it's it's if you're in a situation where you have those certain obligations, that's your life. You just have to find the time to close the door. Uh, you know, Doug Preston, who's a great American writer, talked about this in a YouTube clip where he talked about 
the need just to sort of go into your own, he's married with kids, but he pumps out books every year. You know, the need to go into your own space and make everybody understand that you need that hour or two every day just to be on your own and to work the craft and to do it. So it really comes down to just doing it, believing in yourself and being persistent and being passionate about what it is that you're doing. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Valerie. Well, that was Tony. Well, it was really interesting. It's yeah. a bit of a shame about the audio, but yeah. I'm sure that if people persisted, they would have heard some excellent things yes. in there. Yes, hope you yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. So let's move on to our app pick for the week. Well, this is actually, I don't know, it's an oldie but a goodie, and I think that a lot of people who are listening might go, yeah, of course I know that. But a lot of people, like I was showing a friend of mine this, and she is a very tech-savvy person, and she had never used this function. Right. But I don't know I don't know whether you use it, Alison, but um, I am using it more and more now because sometimes I go walking in the morning, probably not as far as you go, but uh, <laughs> I go walking in the morning and I'm with my phone and sometimes I think, oh, I've got to do whatever. So I want to write something down to remind myself or I want to send an email to the office and, uh, you know, I don't want to stop walking because, mm, you know. Gosh, no. Yes. You wouldn't want to lose your momentum. Yes, that's right. Mm. So I just start the email and when the keyboard comes up, on your iPhone, and I'm sorry everyone who doesn't have an iPhone, there's probably an equivalent on your phone as well, but uh, many people don't notice the little microphone at the bottom of the screen, mm. uh, just under the keyboard. Mm. I'm not sure if you can see it on yours, Al, but you just press the microphone and you just talk your whole message in and it just go, it just comes up. Because what I found, I used to be a really big fan of Dragon, you know, Dragon Naturally yeah, Speaking, yeah, yeah. Dragon Dictate, whatever it's called now. A really big fan because it was. I was surprised at how accurate it was. I dictated massive amounts of text through it, um, but I have found it's gotten worse and worse over the last couple of couple of years. And I find now this this little function on your iPhone or you know on your or on your Mac because there's a similar thing on your Mac is actually just as accurate as Dragon used to be. And Ooh. so I can be walking along and I can just. Uh, tap the microphone and send myself a reminder or send an email to someone or send a text message and it's really, really accurate. Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. You might even be able to type, you know, 2,000 words or something on your walk or something. Like Tristan Banks, but he just does it with his thumbs. With his thumbs. That's right. (laughs) That's right. So anyway, I just wanted to remind people about the microphone function on your phone. But let's move on to our working writer's tip. Um, okay, so we have a question that, that actually came through my website. Mm. Um, it's from Renee. So hi, Renee. Hi, Renee. Um, how do you go about choosing who reads your first draft? I am mm. in the position of needing some serious feedback on my books, and at first I have tended to pick nice people <laughs> who I know will be gentle with any criticism. <laughs> However, now I feel I should steal myself for a bit of tough love. How many people should I seek out? What kinds? Do I provide a questionnaire for them or just keep it to a chat over coffee? Basically, how do I eke out the best feedback? So have you got any thoughts on that, Valerie? Great question. Mm, I, think, I think that it's great that you've got yourself to a stage that you feel that you need tough love. And I think, I think it's, that's excellent. Yeah, excellent. Mm. But I also think it was a good tactic that initially you, you, know, dealt, you decided to give it to people who you knew you would be gentle with you, especially when it's your first time. But I do think that it's, you know, there, there's a time to grow up and uh, it's. I still think that you can – 
include one gentle person in there. Um, but definitely go for people who read for a start. Mm. So not necessarily your mother or your best friend if they don't read books, you know. Mm. So go for people who read and enjoy reading and whose opinion you respect, of course. I think that you should give them a guideline, whether that's in a form of a question. I think it needs to be a little bit more than a chat over coffee because I think you need to give them a guideline of what to look out for. Like perhaps say, suggest to them, if something doesn't make sense, please make notes in the margin about what was confusing Mm. Or or something like that because you want mm. a bit more than just this very general overview, did I like the story? Mm. You actually want, um, you know, really specific feedback. But but what do you think? Well, I think a questionnaire is a great idea because um, I know um, a children's author that I know who actually sends her manuscript out. She chooses three beta readers and she sends it out to kids who read who are about the age of the manuscript that she is writing and she provides a questionnaire so that it's like, do you think the character is this? Does this make sense? Um, would you read to the end? Did you like the ending? You know, that kind of stuff. It's very basic with kids. Mm. Um, I think I would add to your uh, theory about, you know, giving it to people who read. I think you need to give it to people who read what you're writing. Mm. So if you're writing romance, give it to people who read romance. Do not give it to the librarian who only likes literary fiction mm. or, you know, th- just choose wisely. So you need people who read in your area. And I would actually suggest that one of the best ways to to get the feedback that you're seeking is actually to join a writer's group mm. because I think that writers can be, um, they know what you're trying to do. And I think that what you want is feedback from someone who knows what you're trying to do. And you really don't want someone who's just is going to tell you that it's all lovely. You don't want that because you need to know. And you probably got secretly in your heart a fair idea of where the problems are. So ask them about those areas. You know, if you think the characters, you know, aren't quite right or there's a a big hole in the middle or something like that, specifically ask them about that. Because, you know, you need to to know. Because you know what? If you send that off to a publisher, all those things that you're hoping that people are going to gloss over, they're going to pick up straight away. So you might as well iron them out now. Um, and my other suggestion would be don't don't send it out to 10 people. It's just going to confuse you. Choose a couple. Like just yes. choose a couple. I think three is a good. Three is good. What you'll yeah. find with three, generally speaking, is that you'll get someone who loves it, someone who hates it, and someone who's somewhere in the middle. So, you know, and then you basically look at what you want to sort of take on board and discard, remembering always that it's your story, always. Yes. And if, you know... Not everyone's going to love everything you do, but if you think it's integral to the story, don't muck about with it too much because you'll just end up with a blando. Yeah. And I think that um, because a lot of people do our six-month course in Mm. Write Your Novel Mm. and one of the key components of that is workshopping. But but ultimately at the end you give it to three or four beta readers. Yeah. And they read the whole thing and you're doing it to them as well. So they take yeah. it seriously. Yeah. And the feedback that you get back is invaluable because you know that not only do these people enjoy reading, they've got because they've just done a six month course and many of them have done many other courses, there's a certain level of knowledge about the craft of writing that they're bringing to the table as well. Yeah. So it's invaluable. So definitely, definitely, um, you know, get take the time to to find good beta readers because they invariably their uh, manuscripts improve out of sight Hmm. yes so i hope that helped renee 
Yes, thanks for the question, Renee. If you have a question for us, we'd love to answer it for you. Email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But uh, what, oh, oh, and also if you need the show notes, uh, you can find them on the website, writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. But what are you up to this coming week, Al? Well, clearly I'll be, you know, mainlining lemon drinks and <laughs> other sort of things. Codrill, yes, yeah, soldiering on, as they say. Yes. Um, I have a book week, um, like a late book week parade to attend on Wednesday. Yes, what are you I'll dressing up as? Well, I'm going to wear my new cloak. I have an amazing new cloak that is all lined oh, yes. with maps, which I will put a photo up yes. once I actually look not like I'm, you know, <laughs> a white walker, which is pretty much how I look right now. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm going to hand out prizes and uh, we've had some fantastic prizes donated for this book week from uh, Tristan, uh, not Tristan, so who Andy Griffiths has donated a signed book. Um uh, Nicholas and Alison Lakell have, invi- have 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 um, donated a signed book. Alison Rushby has. Yvette Pashoglian has. So you know, I have to say that the author community is incredibly supportive of um, you know when you need. So it's great. So I'm heading off to do that on Wednesday. And apart from that, yeah, you know, recovering, recovering. Yeah, yeah you've done and very you- well <laughs> considering you're very sick. I haven't snorted once, so I think that's no, awesome. No, <laughs> What are you going to be doing? What am I going to be doing? I'm going to be heading back to Sydney for a brief period and then I'm actually off to Brisbane mm. to uh, run a workshop there. So it's it's a bit busy, but after that I'm hoping to not be living out of a suitcase for a while because it would be nice to just be back home and get myself organised because I'm still not organised really from my move. Oh. But I, I'm getting there, getting there. Have you unpacked your books yet? No, but the bookshelf finally arrived. It needs to be assembled. <laughs> but uh, I will be able to do that very soon. I'm very excited about that. I'm sure you are. But if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your feedback on Twitter and your shout-outs as well. If you could spread the word about the podcast, we'd really appreciate it as well uh, because, you know, it's um, we love bringing it to you. We do. Yes. But uh, until next time, we will chat to you then. We will. Bye. This week's giveaway is Snail Mail by Michelle McIntosh about the beautiful and crafty art of letter writing. Every page is a delight and you leaf through its gorgeous illustrations, cutouts and rubber stamp templates. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday, 7 September 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writercentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.